I wonder, have you ever written anything out of pain? Have you ever written out of pain? Be that a text message, an email, or a sermon? Have you ever written out of pain? Have you written to a person or people you love, and the very reason you are writing is surrounded by painful circumstances? If you know this experience, then you know that every word matters. So if you're writing a text message and you want to express your care and love, every word matters, every word carries a weight of meaning, which means if it's a text message, your thumbs are feverishly working on all that pace to write and get it out there, but they're also spending as much time on delete, correct and repeat. And if, depending on your carrier and the other person, they spend most of their time seeing three kind of illuminated dots. Perhaps it's an email or a letter where such mediums feel like we've got more plate space to devote to it, more time, and we want to say everything we possibly can, yet we fear, therefore, we can say too much. Have you ever written out a pain? The Apostle Paul had to. And this is why these words are here. The Apostle Paul had to write out of pain as he penned these words that we just heard Mel read from. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. These are words written out of pain. In our Doctrine of Church series, a usual feature for reforming each year, third term, first term, meet Jesus, who is the gospel, what is the gospel, second term, Old Testament, so we can understand how the Old Testament points to the gospel in the New Testament, third term for us, generally each year, we're in a book of the Bible, be that New Testament or Old Testament, because we're looking at a doctrine of the church, why? Because Jesus loves the church. Ecclesiology matters. Jesus died for the church, he saved to gather the church. So as we look around at one another, as we heard in the kids talk, the church matters to Jesus. Now, for our series this year, we're praying for a culture of Christ. Ever since we planted, and if you were there in those early days, one of the reasons reforming was planted was to have a culture of Christ. Not saying that other churches don't, but we fought for that, we guarded that, we wanted that particularly to be one where we are a place of grace, of kindness, of love, of instead of talking about people, we talk with them, Matthew 18 style, all those sorts of things that Jesus would have us do, that we want to be like Jesus. So as Paul writes this letter, he writes out of personal pain because he sees a church that he planted. It's personal for him. It's his planted church that Paulus watered and, and others have been involved in. Sosthenes is his team partner, but for him, these people are dear to him. And so he writes out of pain. In First and Second Corinthians, and if you want to see, there's actually four letters. We've got two of them. So there was a series, there was a sermon last week. You can, I think it'll be on the screen maybe uh, in the sermon, but you can you can actually go and find this easily. Just Google it. There are actually four letters, but the two letters we have in the Bible, both of them, Paul writes his heart on his sleeve, and then he says of the other letters, they were tearful letters, even severe letters, had to say hard things to the church. I love Paul writes. He started last week by saying how thankful he is for this church. You can see that in the first nine verses. But as we come to verse 10, verse 10 in 1 Corinthians, in this letter, in this book, it's verse 10 that is the purpose statement of the letter. So it's a church that Paul writes to, uh, and, and, and they're reporting things, and Paul is writing back, and he's talking about the letters that they're going to and fro in. But the verse 10 
sums up the big issue. There are other problems, of course, but the big issue is, verse 10, they are dysfunctional. They're divisive. There's big heart problems here. And Paul writes in verse 10, he doesn't start negatively. He starts with, actually, the first point in your outline there, unity is a given for a church. Like, unity ought to be a given for a church. Paul writes this in the back of his prayer for them. He's giving thanks for them. So he's not coming out guns blazing. He's not like Galatians. You read Galatians. He's straight away. No thanks in Galatians. In Galatians, straight away, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but that you would even believe there is. That's Galatians. But not. he's thankful for them. A church with problems, but he's thankful for them. But now in verse 10, he has an appeal. I want you to notice, have a look at verse 10. This is why it's good to have Bibles open when we need our Bibles. Be like Bereans, test what I'm saying. It's got to be from the Scriptures, but look at verse 10. It's slightly harder to see in English, but you can pick it up. There are key verbs that tell us what is the big thing going on. And the key verbs here, the main verbs, are appeal and agree. He is appealing for them to be a church that does agree. And that ought to be a given. Now, of course, friends, every church has disagreements. Why is that? Because every church is a sanctuary of sinners, a hospital for the sick, as Charles Spurgeon said. It's a hospital for the wounded from the world, and so as we come into church, we bring in those things, those wounds, and we bring in often disagreement. Paul knows this. The Corinthians know this. But the given is, by the grace of God, because we're saved and gathered to be together by the person of Jesus Christ, the given is that we would agree in the Lord. Paul writes this to the Philippians as well. Yodi and Suntike, we were there not long ago. Notice this, Paul says twice here, brothers and sisters or brethren. Brothers and sisters, we ought to agree. Now, why is that? Because Paul is showing us this. He's writing to a church family. It's not a town or a community like the world. It's not a company or a franchise of a company. It's a church family. And families have disagreements. And families with disagreements that are left without addressing things become dysfunctional. And divisions form. And family stops operating like a family but becomes more like a warring clan. Sadly, some churches have followed this path. And with concern for the very fracturing of the church family at Corinth, Paul writes positively for what is a given at least, what could be unity that we agree, Paul says. Paul appeals that they would agree. Now, I want you to notice this. Have a look. It's in verse 10. The appeal to agree is not an appeal to have a yes-men mindset. He doesn't even do that with Iodian and Suntike who are disagreeing. He says, agree in the Lord. He's not saying be yes people. He's just saying, it's not right when there's divisions. He's saying it's good to be in harmonious relationships. Psalm 133, that cross-reference we had read earlier. Paul is urging them to be united and to be actually vigilant against a desire for division. For it's kind of unhealthy if you like division, isn't it? Like if you feed off that, if you just that's the, if your if your mode is fight mode, divisive mode, there's something unhealthy about that. 
If that's how you've been taught or discipled or that's the shape of what you are, there's something not right there. And division is a problem in the church at Corinth. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. Now, some of you will know, many of you will know, we have three kids in our family, two boys, Knox and Wesley. Knox is named after John Knox, not Broughton Knox, in case you're looking at church history figures, John Knox, one of the reformers and founders of the Presbyterian Church. People say, oh, you must be really Presbyterian, right? Actually, it's not the reason we didn't do that. The reason is because John Knox, if you read about him, was in a very hostile world and he had to be brave. And so we teach how Noxie, who's our most sensitive one, is a bit like me. Amy says, I think she's right. She always is. Knox is a sensitive boy. He's going to need to be brave in a hostile world. Wesley, we name Wesley because we love singing about Jesus. And Charles Wesley, not John, the brother, but Charles wrote about 5,000 hymns and songs in the English language that no one has surpassed. No one's beaten that record. So we named him Charles Wesley. Sorry, Wesley, after Charles Wesley. What about Chloe? Well, Amy disliked the name. And she said, no more weird church history names. <laughs> so we didn't go with Katerina Von Barr or anywhere else. You know, we just went with Chloe. But, as you just read in verse 11, Chloe appears in the Bible. Now, we joke with our kids, right, and say, well, Chloe in the Bible there seems like she's a bit of a dobber. (laughs) But actually, it's not really a joke, is it? Because Chloe is genuinely concerned, her household are genuinely concerned what's happening in their church. Division in the church is no joke. It's painful. So when Paul writes out of pain, he says that some of Chloe's household have felt this pain. There are people writing to Paul as leader and saying, I'm concerned. I've got an email coming in. I've got a text message coming in. I'm concerned about this division in the church. It's worrying me. It's causing me anxiety. And therefore, Paul has the same level of anxiety. As I said, Knox is sensitive one. I tend to be, that's my default position. I, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve when I'm preaching. I've told you many times over 10 years of reforming, one of my weaknesses is I'm a warrior. I'm an anxious person. I need the scriptures. I love the Apostle Paul because the same Apostle Paul who says in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about everything but be prayerful instead. I go, yep, great. Thanks, Paul. Also says in 2 Corinthians 11, of all the things that he suffered from, the trump card at the end is his anxiety for the church. And you know, that's the thing I really most worry about. My life is short, it's brief, and I have to give an account one day to the Lord Jesus. How did this church go in its health? And what did you do to help that happen? In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes his heart on his sleeve in that first, that second cross-reference reading, and he says this, as Josh read it out, For I fear perhaps when I come to you at Corinth, he's saying, I may find you not as I wish that you may not find me as you wish. Perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. The problem is named in different ways in 1 Corinthians here. So in verse 11 it's called quarrelling, same word that's used in 2 Corinthians there. But in verse 10 it's called divisions. But here's where it gets really interesting. The original Greek word that's used here 
for divisions is schisma. Can you guess what word we get in English from that? Schisms. You know what schisma means, or schisms means? It literally means to cut apart. To cut people apart. And it's leading to such cut apart factions in the church. I think it would be easy for us to read verse 12. I'm going to do that right now. I think it would be easy, just a heads up. We're going to read verse 12. It would be easy for us to read verse 12 and go, wow, that's so silly. Man, that church must be dysfunctional. Who would do that? Just keep that in mind. Verse 12. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Kephas, or I follow Christ. The divisions here are around personalities. Now, those people haven't necessarily asked for such schisms. They're not asked to be part of a kind of a faction group, but people are doing it. See, when a divisive heart takes hold, people believe and behave in all sorts of unhealthy ways. Belief shapes behaviour. We've heard that before. What you believe will shape how you behave. And there's a terrible irony here. Do you see the irony? Some people don't want to follow Paul, right? So you know, Paul writes, and in verse 1 we saw Paul and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes was the leader of the synagogue until he was converted. In fact, he was the replacement for Crispus who was converted. So Crispus gets converted by the gospel, then they replace him with Sosthenes. He gets converted by the gospel, and they're just like, goodness, this gospel's just so annoying. Keep replacing our synagogue leaders all the time. So Paul writes... My brother Sosthenes, who's with you, he's a church leader. But there's people in the church going, yeah, we don't like Sosthenes. We're not, we're, not, we're not going to agree with that leadership team. And do you know the irony, the terrible irony of what they're doing? They don't want to agree with Paul and his leadership team, so they say they follow Apollos. Do you see the irony? They're doing the very same thing others they claim are doing. They're just agreeing with Apollos. We don't agree with you, but we'll agree with Apollos. So you, you do think there's agreement. You do think there should be agreement. You just, you just can't work out how to actually have that in a healthy way. Some follow Paul the planter. Paul planted this church. He must be pretty important. I follow Paul. Some follow Apollos. Now, Apollos, his history is he's a great preacher. Aquila and Priscilla see him preaching, but they work out he hasn't quite understood biblical theology, so they take him aside and explain to him the way, the full way of the gospel. We read that in Acts 18. But Apollos comes back from that training school, and he's even better as a preacher. He's probably a great rhetorician, and people in those days love rhetoric. It's like us. What do you love these days? We love Netflix and streaming. Well, those days it was rhetoric. You want to be entertained, you go and listen to speeches. So they listen to Apollos. He's a great preacher. Paul, I mean... Goodness, he says some hard things and he's a bit of an intellectual, but Apollos, I follow Apollos. And then there are some who say, well, <laughs> I follow Kephas. Kephas is Peter. Because he's one of the original 12, you know. And if you want to be one of the original 12 and have a t-shirt, you've got to follow Kephas. Now these factions have been turned into something of an identity faction. They've attached it to baptism. So Paul has to say, you know, I can't even remember who I baptized. That's how much that matters to me. Baptism is important, but Paul doesn't make baptism the main thing. It's the gospel. It's Jesus who is the main thing. Paul says in verse 14, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, and so that no one may say you're baptized in my name. And then he says, I can't remember who else I baptized really, but must have been a lot of baptisms happening. 
Paul is showing here he's not going to play into their hands on this party spirit. Because here's a tip. If you're going to be a leader in a church, that is a great temptation. Um, when I went to Moore College in Sydney and I was a student minister, they sat all the Moore College students down, so I'm, I'm young and bushy-tailed, 25-year-old, so young, so young now. And they sat us all down, the 80 in the room, and they said, you're about to go on student ministry placement to churches across the Sydney Basin. And they said, here's a few things you need to keep in mind. When you go there, they will see you as the young, new person, and some people will come up to you, among many things they taught us, but some people come up to you and say, we don't really like the minister here, and we think you're better, and you listen to us. And they just warned us about that thing, the whole divide the leadership thing. The whole I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Kephas. Because a leader can get sucked into that too. Well, they, they like me better, and maybe I am. Guard our hearts. But in a healthy leadership, a healthy leadership is united and won't fall for it. And how does Paul avoid such flattery? Because him hearing that I follow Paul, what would that make him possibly feel as a sinner? Oh, yeah. Maybe I am. I've got my faction group. That'd be a great temptation for a leader. See, leadership training is not just having good ideas or having a fun team. It's enduring suffering and being aware of our own sin. Paul says, effectively, I can't remember how influential it was in your life. I can't remember. In fact, it's not important to me. I don't need to be an influencer to be a leader. Now, we've mentioned three. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Kephas. There is a fourth group you'll notice in verse 12. In this fourth group, we could think, you know, well, they're the good group. But I actually think, and scholars scholars think this too, so I had to check this out, so I'm not just being weird and wrong. But when you look at this, look what Paul is saying. When it comes to this sort of thing, this whole my dad is better than yours type argument, it's easy to think the solution is to go one better, isn't it? So there's actually this fourth group, and what are they saying? Well, you losers, I follow Christ. See? This fourth group want to act in such a way that on the surface level it seems they take the higher road. Well, you've got the name Jesus in your group. <laughs> this must be really good. Short answer. Wow, that was a good quip. That was quick. I wish I was that witty to say I follow Jesus. That's fine, except ironically they've actually made it their own faction by making others look spiritually inferior. They're not saying, hey, let's have a culture of Christ. Let's all be with Christ. No, instead they're insinuating and sinning by saying, our faction is better than yours. There's an early church father, his name is Chrysostom. He's one of those guys I read just to make sure I'm not wrong and just want to check it out. And he said they were making Christ the head of a faction rather than the head of the whole. It results in such people, that fourth faction, unquestionable. You can't question that. Because they'll use terms like, that's unbiblical, not of Christ. It's like, well, show me in the Bible. Because Paul is showing us here as he writes with pain, the whole I follow Christ thing is easily the fourth faction. It's spiritual superiority dressed up in piety. 
All four schismatic groups had all taken their eyes off Christ, the real Jesus. And they have the solution before them, Paul writes. Verse 17 is preaching Christ. Preaching the real Jesus Christ is the solution. Paul reminds them just how the church was planted and how the church was watered. He does this throughout this letter. And it's the same power, and it's the same power that is the solution to the schisms. It's preaching Christ. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, in other words, he's saying to have factions around baptism, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, in other words, not like the Apollos faction, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And if you know Peter, that faction, well, Galatians. There's a temptation to legalism. The power of the gospel is in the power of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's in the cross. The Apostle Paul heard the divisions which plagued the church at Corinth. It's painful for him. It is for them. And so for Paul, the solution to this has got to be the gospel. It's even needed by the people who say, I follow Christ. It's needed by them. The division can't be healed by things that we try on a human level. See, the power to heal the pain of division doesn't come in the power of humanity. We can't come around together around a common cause and defeat division in our hearts. We try it. In fact, ironically, it never works. Imagine this. Well, I don't like those people, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to find other people that like me and not like those people. Let's all gather in this common cause and we'll heal the division between us and them. It's like the dumbest solution ever. It's like the US and the Soviets going against the Nazis in World War II and saying, yeah, we're going to band up together. You come from the east, we'll go from the west, we'll meet in the middle, we'll work out who actually won and gets the spoils. And by the way, let's not fight after this. Except there's a whole thing called the Cold War. It's merely a human solution to find the common cause in humanity and surround it, whether it be a person, a personality, or an issue, that is a merely human solution full of sinners that will never solve it. And sadly, sometimes Christians grasp at such straws. And the answer, friends, is also not found in just sweeping it under the carpet. It's not found in sweeping it under the carpet as if there's power in the carpet. By the way, we don't have carpet here. Not in this room at least. But it's also on the other hand of the spectrum, the solution is not found, well, let's just have more disagreement. That's healthy. Let's have disagreement for disagreement's sake. No, the Bible consistently shows wanting disagreement, wanting conflict in a church is unhealthy and it's ungodly. By the way as well, when has it ever also worked? When has disagreement for the sake of disagreement worked? It doesn't work anywhere. It doesn't work in our sporting teams. Can you imagine a sporting team that said, you know what we love in our sporting team is disagreement. We just, we just want to have every game, we're going to disagree. On the rules, on the team plays, on the culture, it would never work. So Paul writes, verse 13, is Christ divided? The very one who dies for the church, is he divided? Is Christ factional? Is Christ schismatic? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
Is Christ divided in his loyalties to his church? The answer is simply no. So Paul writes, I appeal to you that there may be no more divisions among you. Friends, the power of Christ heals the pain of division. Friends, we're a Presbyterian church. There's lots of things I love at the Prezi Church. I didn't grow up in it. I'm a newcomer to this thing. But I'll tell you one of the things I love at the Presbyterian Church, and I saw this also when I was 25 and went to a Prezi Church, kind of for the first time. I noticed this. The Presbyterian Church is designed for disagreement. We're a church of plurality and we possess, therefore, through that process, an inherent accountability. No one can do whatever they want here and that's okay. Especially the minister. Especially the elders. We're a denomination of courts and assemblies, elders, boards and congregational meetings where we have discussion and debate and motions and resolutions, voting and above all, love. It's the Westminster system. There's a book you can get, it's called Robert's Rules. It's thoroughly bedtime reading. At times, I probably should have read it recently. Robert's Rules. Parliament, the Prezi Church, work on the same system. A plurality of people making decisions. At the local church level, we have what's called a session. Sessio from the Latin means to sit, meet and sit. A session is only formed from two elders and one minister, at least. You have to have at least two elders and a minister, otherwise you don't have a session. So therefore, you've got the two or three inherently involved in the leadership team. We're praying for more because we only have, at the moment, two serving elders and one minister, one's on sabbatical. The session is designed from the scriptures for a plurality of shared authority in a leadership team. The board likewise, the board of management, elected by you every year, is handles the facilities and the finances and a shared authority of plurality. The session doesn't handle the money, therefore. Doesn't touch the money, doesn't see the money. And in all this, there is disagreement, friends. Decision-making requires it. But disagreement with love, the gospel demands it. Friends, if you want to be in a church where no one disagrees with you, then have a church with one person in charge. Maybe that's you, I don't know. But there are churches where just the minister is just the senior minister. That's the person in charge. Well, there's no disagreement. We took that out the window because they just make all the decisions. Ironically, there's no disagreement at all. But if you want a church full of disagreement and fights, then you need to find a church where mob rule happens, where there's no elected leadership. Might becomes right. It's just the loudest voice. So everyone else is intimidated. That's mob rule. But what does Jesus want? It's right here. Jesus wants unity. And he gives the church, he gives church leaders structures and systems of accountability for the sake of being able to disagree with love in unity. But most of all, above all that, Jesus gives what? 
He gives himself. Friends, here's what we need in our hearts. As much as I love the Prezi Church, the Prezi Church won't save you. It won't change your heart. It's just a system that exists. But here's what we actually need, is verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we agree. That doesn't mean agree on everything without exception, but it means agree in Jesus, in the way that Jesus that we'd actually disagree or agree, whatever it is, that we look like Christ, that our character be like Christ. We're not mean to one another. We're not cruel to one another. We don't dominate. We don't divide. We don't sow discord, but that we agree. For in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we who are the mature in Christ know this, there are lots of things we can disagree on as we show love. There is a difference between disagreement with a love that binds us and division that cuts us. And how this plays out in church's belief and behaviour will become the culture of our church. As a long-distance friend, he's a prison minister in Scotland, and uh, he, he has this great line, I love it, he says, structures tell stories. So the way your church is structured tells a story. It tells you what you think, what you believe, how shapes our behaviour. The, the biggest story that has a structure to it is the gospel. So that when you have a Bible open, when you see love at the centre of 1 Corinthians and you see that that actually shapes how we agree, anything that's not of love, not of Christ, is sin. So if people are disagreeing in mean ways, unkind ways, unchristlike ways, if there's quarrelling, schisms and division that cuts us, friends, hear this, quarrelling is a work of the flesh. But uniting is the work of Christ. Churches that have a culture of Christ cherish the power of Christ in reforming us like him. So unity in the church can't be based on shared likes or getting just what you want, because that would never work. Because a lot of people just don't always get what they want, me included, especially. Unity won't be genuine if it's based on our age group or ethnicity or economic influence. That's not genuine unity. We have people from different nations here, different age groups, different backgrounds. No, unity is found in the gospel. And here's the gospel, the good news. It's Jesus himself who gives himself to us, who lays down his personal preferences, who submits to his Father in heaven, who shouldered out the visive sin that cuts and separates us from God and saves us into the church that's his body and says, I love you, I want you to love one another. Friends, this is the sermon before the supper. We're going to turn to the table of the Lord now and as the church family find our unity in no other place, in no other person, but in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have just heard your word and now we come to the real challenge of change, believing it. We're asking that we would believe in the gospel, that by the name of that gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have a church culture of agreeing in the Lord. 
We ask that this would see us love, even through disagreement, that Jesus would change everything for us and that we would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For we ask in the name of the one who saves us, in Jesus' name.